tuned in to listener-supported Community Radio, KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio brings you a public service announcement from the Pacific Northwest Society of Jungian Analysts. The PNSJA are established counselors, currently offering up to three video counseling sessions for medical personnel, first responders, and essential workers who may be experiencing mental health difficulties from their work engagement with the COVID pandemic. More information can be found at pnsja.org. This is Barbara Lamorticella. While we're working out technical details of broadcasting from home, we're replaying a few earlier shows. Tonight's on poet Judith Barrington was first broadcast in February 2019 but we open with a preview of an upcoming program on the works of legendary San Francisco beatnik poet and dissenter Bob Kaufman, an African-American who was founder of the influential beatnik magazine Beatitude and inspiration and mentor to Allen Ginsberg and the famous white beatniks of the 50s and 60s. He gravitated to San Francisco when, after eight years of union work and uh, being in the Merchant Marine, he was denied a mariner's card in 1951 for communist sympathies and thrown out of the National Maritime Union for degeneracy when he admitted drug use. These are from a series of poems written in the San Francisco city prison in 1959. Jail Poems Number one. I'm sitting in a cell with a view of evil parallels, waiting thunder to splinter me into a thousand me's. It is not enough to be in one cage with oneself. I want to sit opposite every prisoner in every hall. Doors roll and bang. Every slam of finality, bang. The junkie disappeared into a red noise, stoning out his hell. The odored wino congratulates himself on not smoking. Fingerprints left lying on black inky gravestones. Noises of pain seeping through steel walls crashing reach my own heart. I become part of someone forever. Wild accents of criminals are sweeter to me than the hum of cops busy battening down hatches of human souls. Cargo destined for ports of accusations, harbors of guilt. What do policemen eat, Socrates, still prisoner, old one? Number 14. 
One day, Adolf Hitler had nothing to do. All the Jews were burned, artists all destroyed. Adolf Hitler was very bored, even with Eva. So he moved to San Francisco, became an ordinary policeman, devoted himself to stamping out beatniks. That was Bob Kaufman, and for more of his unique life and work, um, listen to an upcoming broadcast. For now, we turn to Judith Barrington, speaking and reading in February 2019. You are listening in KBL Portland, 90.7 on your FM dial. This is Barbara Lamorticella, uh, back at KBU. I'm very happy to be back after uh, a long absence from Talking Earth. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you, Walt, and thank you, KBU, for inviting me back. I'm going to be doing a show every two months, and um, I am uh, with me in the studio tonight is my very first guest in the new world, and this is Judith Barrington. Welcome, Judith. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, Judith <coughs> left her home in England, where she was raised in Brighton-on-the-Sea, and um, a brief relationship in 1976 brought her to Portland for a brief visit. And her brief visit uh, continued to the present day, <laughs> much to um, the benefit of the women's community in Portland, because um, Judith and her partner Ruth Gundel um, have been uh, pillars of the women's literary community and have helped with their, um, their residency soapstone, um, and uh, with many, many projects have helped uh, uh, and supported the women writers uh, in this town. Um, she met Ruth in 1979, and they have been together um, ever since. Um, Judith, every poet has uh, a theme or themes that recur uh, in their work. Um, and I think of these as essential chords that uh, in the music right. that the poet is playing. They're sort of like spirals, you know. You you think you're done with it, and then you circle back and take it another another layer. That's very interesting because that's just what you do in this book. Yep. Um, the book Long Love is your newest collection, and it's um, selected poems from your first seven books. It's your eighth book. Mm-hmm. And um, and each each plus, it's plus a section of new poems plus a section of new poems yeah and um, there there are themes that and I think every in your themes recur and recur and recur being developed <laughs> um, and uh, um, in in each book they're developed and combined differently um, and they're the, the essential themes for you. Yep. Um, of of your um, artistic work, and um, we're not going to have a, a chance to. I I wish I could. I wish I could read poems that represented all of those themes because this is like the distillation of a lifetime's work, and um, the themes are very richly developed. We don't have that time. We're going to start out with poems from the 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 new poems, um, and and one of the themes. Uh, a theme that recurs again and again um, is is death, um, the death of your mother, um, and you know the the de- you were born in a time of war, right? And as you go deeper and deeper, as your your books progressed, each volume, you come closer and closer to uncovering um, the the what's what's really hidden in the background. And and the war, the fact that you were born during a bombing raid, and that you were born into a world which, in one poem, you said, "This was the world I came in, and mm-hmm. I have to learn to love it." Have to learn to love it. Yes. Um, but um, the the trauma of your mother listening to bombs in 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 the womb, the trauma of a of a little girl getting blown up or a boy getting blown up by a grenade mm-hmm. um, when you were a child. Um, and um, the the trauma of riding a horse, 
and horses also are another one of your themes and I wish I could read the the sen- the poems the sensuality of horseback riding for a young girl and I think also for you horses represented the wild and and I think they were the spirit animal too your spirit animal mm-hmm. and this spirit animal it definitely is you know revealed to be that in one of the the first of the poems in your first section which is called Not the Night Nurse, yeah. which um, weaves together. And, and also the, the newest section, um, you have had some problem with illness. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, a direct confrontation. You had a heart attack. Yes, and quite recently. And quite recently, <laughs> right, which is perhaps pre-shadowed in, in uh, a yeah. poem or two in the book. But my, my, my friend, the late Maxine Cumin who I loved dearly and whose work I loved, remarked how as we went on and got older that our poems got more deathy. <laughs> and I, and I, can, I think she was right. I feel like I've been writing poems that are more and more deathy as I go on. I tried to, I tried to pick poems to ask you to read that managed to, to um, at least bring together uh, your, uh, uh, several of your themes, yes. weave them together. And this one... Um, well, I'll just let you read it. Not the night nurse. Yes. And and should we say something about the horse when you were eight years old? I come. I think it comes into the poem. I think it's clear in the poem. I think the thing that that maybe should be just drawn attention to is that the there is a personification of the figure of death uh, that appears to me on several different occasions through my life. And uh, um, well. That's that's another theme that comes into the poem. I'll read it, shall I? I read it? Sure. Not the night nurse. One, the rounded rock of his withers just in front of the saddle, his hips, knobs that move awkwardly, sling me side to side at the trot. Under my seat bones, his back sways low, ribs staring through clouds of dappled grey. He's been coughing, they told me, a dry, gasping kind of cough that leaves grassy froth on his lips. Lips that so carefully kiss the sugar cube on my palm and maneuver it in past old yellowed teeth. Mellow heat embraces us as we trot up the narrow path, me and the older girl on another riding school pony, carnival under me, wheezing, and blackberries twined in the barbed wire fence, Beyond golfers drive from the third tee, their clock, clock, lulling the whole county into love of Sunday. None of us, not one, anywhere from the windmills on top to the cowsheds below, believe it will ever end. A swish, a voice nearby, says, nice drive. Ah, Need to go on. Shall I cut out a little here? Yes. This okay. is section three. Well, I, I just mm-hmm. want to say, um, okay, I'll, we'll, I'll say it after. Section three. In section two, the, my horse I'm riding, Carnival, has lied down on the grass and died. And you ran away. And I you ran were away. eight years old. You yeah. were a child, yes. and that was like a, a very, very early shocking experience. Right. right. So okay. this is the last section, three. At the stables, I hide in Carnival's stall, deep in the smell of straw and dung, deep in the dark pools of his eyes, and I hope the shame is gone, the pain is gone, the awful presence gone. I will tell no one, and no one will ask, even though I wish someone would speak of the grey horse or the figure among the vines, the figure I will see again years later in the hospital night, dark cloaked, parting the medical air to take up its position at the foot of my bed. <laughs> the next poem in, in this new, new collection is called The Language of Tomorrow. Okay. This is just about being old, <laughs> uh, amongst other things. And if, if our uh, listeners are lucky, <laughs> they will arrive at this destination. Yeah. yeah, the language of tomorrow. After this, what next? Waiting rooms with their sunset magazines, kindly or less kindly doctors. After this, familiar faces 
whose names like white butterflies flutter out of reach. The expensive dentist with high-pitched gadgets will stretch her smile more briskly. The therapist will tilt her head, broadcasting an attentive ear to show she's listening. After this, who will hear the song of my white hair, the drum of my better foot, the joke of my outdated speech? Who but you will speak the language of our times together? Who but you will wonder with me what next? After this, a new land of two, or of one alone, its shore no stranger than were the shores we explored together long ago, while the ships of our pasts bucked at anchor in the bay, and coconuts hurtled down from palm trees, bent double under the hurricane. I have an idea of what that hurricane was, the times that we're passing through, and what the coconuts are, the nourishment. <laughs> oh. That, that the times, you know, uh, shook loose the nourishment that also, like, conked in the head, you know, could conked <laughs> in the head. And you're, so, you're so insightful, Barbara. I just write down my poems, and then you tell me what they're all about. Well, <laughs> I, is that bad? <laughs> you well, said I don't you're know. always interested. <laughs> I am. And somebody that else might think, but here's another poem. This poem is about, you're, you're, the title of this book is Long Love. And you're dealing again and again re with these recurring themes, the love of your mother who drowned at sea when you were just a teenager, before you knew yourself in a time when she could not know herself because she was a woman mm -hmm. and had to be motherly. <laughs> um, and um, the, the, uh, the love of the, the landscape, you have a very, very sensual response to the land. And you had a, a, a love, and you describe it, and I'm, I'm, we're going to get to poems that, that deal with that, the love of that particular English landscape by the, by the coast, by the sea, uh, where you were raised. Uh, but there also, this poem, Love, <laughs> you know, you have the, the love of, of um, horses and of animals, um, and this poem is a love of life. You're looking at, at the dog. You want to read the poem? and Yes. Okay. Love. Sometimes you can see it enter the dog. See him look sharply to one side, then the other, as if to wonder where it came from. A shiver from nose to tail, like when rain seeps through his hair onto his skin, provoking a massive shrug so that drops scatter up and away in circles. He tucks his tail forward between the long, slender bones of his hind legs and gathers himself as it takes hold. He is a catapult, stretched, poised, his whole body overflowing with nothing more than love for himself and for the lightning he will become when he lets go and bolts scorching the sweet-smelling turf. <laughs> and love, you know, love of the body, love of life, the sheer joy of being alive. And That's true. You know, I think you, you feel that, you can recognize it, um, particularly when, you know, after hard times. And yes. Um, actually, that almost makes me want to go to a poem from a different section, but we're going to keep on with this because um, the, your, the loss of your mother is a recurring theme. And the, 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 um, the oceans, the various oceans of the world mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. they differ is a recurring theme. And I think in this collection, which is the eighth, mm. um, that uh, you've come to terms with some of the themes that you have been developing over the years. And I would like you to read the poem, Motherfucker. <laughs> and I think this is a way, um, well, let's read it and then I'll tell you. <laughs> tell you what you think <laughs> what, it's <laughs> What I think okay, it's Okay, that's right. good, yes. Okay. okay, Motherfucker. Up front on the prow of the great liner, like Kate Winslet leaning into the wind, oh doomed ship. I am not mid-Atlantic, not even mid-Pacific, but creeping along a canal that joins the great oceans one to another. No wind, 
just heat rising from the desert, canal banks leaning into the flanks of the ship, threading the needle between life and death, to be born from darkness into light, to die from the light into no light, to hear the iambic pulse of the mother ship give way to the swirl of blood in the ears, to wonder if this canal will open onto the unnamed ocean that is home to my mother, her land, her tongue, her ship, and most of all her hood. In these waters she swims, finally free of motherly, and slices through the deeps, muttering, motherfucker, motherfucker. <laughs> In this ocean she flails and wails, while lost opportunities drift around her head. And me? I have been motherless most of my life. Motherly, the role that was given your mother, um, the role that, that led for many women of that generation to the lost opportunity. Yes. Um, and, and you were, in a sense, motherless because your mother was, you know, had not yet discovered yeah. um, who she was. But in this poem, you have freed her. She goes from motherly to motherfucker, motherfucker. Yes, yes. And in this poem... In I hope she's grateful. <laughs> in the previous poem, Dressing for Death, which we won't have time to read, but it's very, very beautiful. You have dressed her because she the, the incident, the, the shipwreck, the, the, you know, no, um, the, the, the drowning at sea, the ship that went down was so awful. And you never got to see her body, mm -hmm. and you you went back in the course of some of these volumes, you know, to to visit her graveside. Um, but in dressing for death, you had her dressed up splendidly in um, a a swirling uh, garment, a great a great blue blouse that stretched from shore to shore. Right. <laughs> yeah. The the and and I. To me, that you know, the, the those poems like in, it, it changed your relationship with, you know, with that event and with, with that my, event my and with the loss of yes. your mother. Yes, um, true. and there's another thing that one more poem from this book. Okay, this uh, section from this collection, this section, <coughs> um, and that is, I think, also another kind of resolution, because once again, you. You loved the the land, the land itself mm -hmm. um, that you were born yeah, in. That's really what I missed when I came, when I settled down here and adopted a new landscape. A new land, the mm. Doug Furs. Yes, right, the land of Doug Furs. But what I always, I always missed that landscape, and I was always wanting to go back and see it once in a while. And this, uh, it, the la that landscape has got not only my history in it, but history of people going back centuries and centuries and you can feel that at certain places in England. And one of, one of the places are the hinges, not yeah. only Stonehenge, right. but there are other stone circles. Yes. And, and this one is called Henge. It's, and it's t I actually wrote it after I'd visited Averbury which is a stone circle very, very like Stonehenge but not so full of tourists. <laughs> and um, to me well, let's let's read the poem. It has an epigraph um, from C.D. Wright, who I have recently only been reading, and uh, one of her poems she she has so Gloucester, you know, from uh, Shakespeare. So Gloucester, who gets blinded, had to smell his way to Dover, and I thought that was so interesting to think about how we could know a landscape through all of our different senses. You know, not just by seeing it, but you could smell your way to a place. Blinded or blindfolded, one permanent, the other temporary. Either way, you sniff or grope or feel your way. So climb now and turn left here. This small gate will swing open. Make sure it latches behind you. Animals must graze. Can you feel how short the grass, how smooth the turf, shorn by the lower teeth of ruminants? Yes, must be sheep. Careful where the path is slick. You cannot see how it's white with chalk, how clouds sweep across the turf like shadows from long ago. 
stone-cutting men hauling with iron machinery heave the sarsens upright. No, nobody knows how. Put out your hands and feel their scarred bodies. Soon you will know where you are. Smell the wind rising from cricket pitch and churchyard. Smoke with a hint of fish and chips, wind with a hint of horse, white horse carved on the north escarpment, or a live glossy horse, her flank the pride of her groom, or even the pub sign, horse and groom, creaking as it sways in the wind, glossy paint faded and cracked. Now do you know? <laughs> Feel with your feet the stones right and left, marking out the avenue, processional route, long before monks with sandaled feet. Clouds became the shade of women making ritual, and the wind wafts sweetness from the manor's lavender walk, or its rose garden, paced by the shadow of Queen Anne. Turn your nose up like a hound, and swivel your head through time. Now do you know where you are? And where where was the the walker? Where where where? What would you say that where was the walker? Well, it's it's I'm I'm seeing it as being walking up to the circle of stones at, at Averbury, and the, the 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 reference to Queen Anne is that some way back there was a rose garden planted by Queen Anne or walked in by yeah. Queen Anne, but. Uh, it could be any one of those stone circles because they were amazingly right. put upright. They're huge, those stones. Uh, but I think also you're someplace else. And you say you swivel your head through time, and yeah. that's something that you do in, in this book, um, weaving together the past, which you are in the process of rediscovering yeah. always. Yes. Um, the past and, and, the pre and, 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 and t now, and also space. You know, right? England and Northwest, the yes. oceans of the world, each one with their own color and smell. Yes. But in this poem, to me, can I tell you what I? Yes. What <laughs> Thank I you. Will I get a, th a therapy fee at the <laughs> end of this? <laughs> I, I think that you have, um, because again and again you return to this longing for the landscape, and in in a later poem, Lost Lands, which I might have you read from a little bit. Um, you go back to some of these places and they're they're all filthed. There's candy wrappers mm -hmm. and mud mm -hmm. and you know buses that roar through. Yes. So you really can't ever go back. But this is the landscape of your heart. And in this poem, in a stone circle, you have gone back and um, uh, I think and you know where you are. You are. This is your interior. The 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 in the home of your heart, which is in you. It's not in the world anymore, but it is still in you. Yes. And the uh, the dyke with no name talks about landscape. I don't know if we should skip straight to that, or maybe you can just read. Should we read the last stanza? I enter the gash of the chalky hills of oh, lost, lost lands, lands. which yeah. is one twenty four. Right. We could follow. Right. The first stanza really is all about how messed up they are. Those places with, the, as you said, the candy wrappers. Um, but it's also about f wanting to go back to this what I call the gash in the the hills, which is something called the Devil's Dyke. It's n it's outside of Brighton, and. Uh, when I first came out as a lesbian, I uh -huh. was very chanted with the idea of uh, was a dyke road right. and a dyke avenue. So this is about going back to that place. It's it's like a like a like a deep uh, gash in the hills. Right. I enter the gash in the chalky hills, try to rekindle the past with steps that slide on trampled grubby grass, and search again for my body's imprint stretched deep in daisies purple clover holding the shape of someone young someone flat on her back gazing past small brown bees the sky smudged with wavering vapor trails of planes headed south where i always wanted to go the word is honeysuckle the life was sweet <laughs> and now to come to the the the, the landscape 
of Oregon. I took a okay. land of Oregon. The I- inevitability of rain on page 44. That's not Oregon, but I'm happy to read it. It's actually well, small streams of Oregon rain slide oh. under my collar. Oh, ha ha ha! It's it's, it's also the Welsh hills. Yes, it's, right. It's how rain in Oregon reminds me of of the okay. the rain in Wales. Okay, we're both right. <laughs> the inevitability of rain. Small streams of Oregon rain slide under my collar. Another rain, another time, slipped soft onto Welsh hills, hung loose on beech boughs, thudded into leaf mold. The rain had a rhythm in my legs and a heady scent that swirled with the greens and greys of the sheep country, muted like tweed, blended with shadows as the clouds moved too fast over the river. Slandissel, the name, soft, the river deceptive, smooth, fast, and dangerous. The house timbered, the colors faded, the rain on the window fast and dangerous. The clouds moved so fast that first time we were alone together. Ah, okay. So we're Moving from Wales and then in Oregon and the, lots of rain, um, also have a poem called Countries, which is really about the difficulties of moving from one country to another in the middle of l- one's life. And I'm just going to read the middle section of it. To change countries midlife is to change mealtimes, tax forms, the shape of mailboxes, and to discover that green and white chalk hills falling down to the grey sea are etched into your heart. Dutiful at first, you admire forests of Douglas fir, but they roll away on such a grand scale that you long for an unassuming pigsty or a shearing shed between narrow pathways of mud. You miss leaning on gates to discuss the weather with strangers and footpaths from which you glimpse the private lives of back gardens. You miss a particular smell of salt and chalk carried by massive winds from the channel and the almost white cliffs turning blunt faces towards France, their toupees of bright green turf threatening to lift and sail away. (laughs) And... um so it's not just landscape that I have longed for, but also ocean. I mean, growing up by the sea, I have a lot of poems that I were in which I missed being close to the ocean. And I have to say that the the, the landscapes of Doug Furs, as you say, it's on a grand. They're huge. Yeah. And it's so Massive. different, so yeah. different from that yeah. landscape. In Very the overwhelming. And the ocean is another yeah. huge landscape. But but you it, it return again and again. To poems about the ocean, you were raised by the sea, and and you, your mother is part of the sea now, and your father. Okay, you shall I read this one? Sure. The book of the ocean. Mm-hmm. They've all written their books. The wind, with its scattering of seeds, its steady erosion of terraced hills, histories carved in the grey faces of cliffs, whose grief it transcribes into song. Rain with its poetry, quick rivulets or pocks that rattle on the roofs of our minds, and sunshine with its golden tails, honey in the mouths of heroes, warriors who blaze and die young. The book of the ocean is the greatest and most neglected. It floats in shadows under rock shelves. It laps at the edges of dreams, a reminder of the deep dark into which we dive nightly, a reminder of the moon that hauls us and hurls us on the brink of wrinkled lands where once we staggered ashore trying to become human. It is written on wavy scrolls at the tide line. It is written as a crab on a dry desert rock. It is written in green and indigo, sometimes a wash. It is written to be studied from space or through the mask on a diver's face. Its comedy splashes our feet. Its tragedies writhe in the tides of the night. Like it or not, we are turning the watermarked pages, their words 
hissing in our ears with blood and with salt, while the moon grows fat, then wanes to the sweetest sickle. Judith, you have um, a, a number of poems in here for Ruth, right, your partner, and um, you who was uprooted and was uprooted in many ways, you know, um, you um, uh, became very close and are very close to Ruth's family and and what her the deep roots in the Jewish uh, community. But her family was also uprooted by the Holocaust. Her father came here, and her grandmother died at Auschwitz, so there's a lot of uprooting in that family, too. Do you want to read this yeah. first section? Sure, it's just one section of this longer poem. A history and geography dedicated to Ruth. Right. Okay. Your finger skims the map, dense with villages, towns, cities of Russia and Eastern Europe, you lean towards the blonde head of your brother-in-law as you search through Bessarabia, and your father hunches over the littered dinner table, passing on pieces of your mother's history, your mother, who was the family historian. You all ask questions, to which mostly there are answers, or at least speculations. Not like my relatives, I think, who say, what's the use? And the past is the past. Uh, having <coughs> very Anglo-Saxon, <laughs> <laughs> very very British middle class, British I would, middle class. Who do, they don't like to dwell on things. Okay. <coughs> and I, it's interesting because I was very interested in the past of my relatives, but because my parents died when I was nineteen. And my brother and sister had inherited that Britishness, that Anglo-Saxonness. I could never really get the stories. I was very interested in finding out. My parents had lived through two wars. They had lived in Spain and run, ran for their lives from Barcelona when the Spanish Civil War broke out. And then they moved back to Britain and the Second World War started and they were living through air raids. So they had a lot of stories to tell that I never heard. And. In, in the in the U.S., um, the characteristic uh, of of um, our our people is that everyone here left behind their villages, you know, um, and you know, and in a way, especially in the early days, I mean, they were fleeing re re religious persecution, or as as today. Um, with uh, the poverty, yeah. um, and um, I, I am actually an Im immigrant. Um, I came in the middle of my life, but I found it hard to realize that for a long time because immigrants, to me, have such a specific uh, history and and are looking. They uh, they don't look like people who right. people of middle middle class privilege like me. They are people who. Are, s are fleeing something very difficult. And uh, I, I was fleeing difficult things in terms of uh, laws about being a lesbian, and but which was illegal when I came here. But nevertheless, I didn't really feel like a true immigrant for a long time. And But the fact that you kept, and I think this is also true of, of, um, of immigrants, at some point their heart goes back to um, even though they left, yes, their native landscape, their you know the village, and 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 there's a sort of a, a longing, and and there's a longing and hunger for roots here. Yeah, and I think that that helps explain um, our fascination now with genealogy. We we all you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and also um, the the genealogy and um, well. Let's let's go into the. Uh, the you want to read the more updated version more of updated that re that relationship right. that uh, history and geography is about. If you fast forward through uh, many years, um, and to a very different time in Oregon when things are a lot easier to for to be a lesbian, um, although not perfect, of course. 
Um, this poem is called On Getting Married for the Third Time. Number one, I did what I was supposed to do. I, it was expected, so I joined the crowd, tramped up the aisle in white drag, drunk, and promised unpromisable things. There was not much except conventional masculinity and an old-fashioned definition of the word wife. The real doozy was my being a lesbian. Yes, well before I hitched myself to the coattails of his morning suit, I had been hitching to dresses, petticoats, even those tight pencil skirts of the fifties and sixties that shortened a woman's stride but clung nicely to rounded buttocks. Eleven months in, that first one hit me and threatened to expose me as a pervert. But number two was a very good man. I needed him at the time, and he graciously agreed to be needed for a couple of years, Nuff said. <laughs> number three, hooray, is the real deal. Not the wedding, you understand, since there wasn't one in the usual sense. What would be the point after 34 years of building what some would call a marriage? What we built was called our life, a life of outlaws, if you think a relationship needs laws. What we made was recognizable, even to the most conventional of our neighbors. A castle with solid walls and a wide portico where an animal, our familiar, in its black or red or black and white coat, would lie beside us while the Norway maple, only three feet tall when the city planted it, grew right through the power lines. That tree became its own castle, with a dim interior of woven branches, mysterious to passers-by, who looked up into the maze, took photos on their iPhones, and watched blue jays and crows, squirrels and hummingbirds busy with their lives. Around year 25, the magnolia we'd bought at an auction to help pay off Marsha's medical bills finally shot up above the porch railing and saluted us where we sat with our gin and tonic at sunset, its succulent, creamy trumpets shaking the foundations of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and shaking. speaking of shaking the foundations of everything we lived through the 70s which was a time of great uh it was a, a time of, of great uh, chaos and upheaval a, chaos and upheaval excitement a, and no, passion and fervor incredible excitement yes very and big yes. change and changes that i i my whole life would have been different were it not for the 70s right i mean everybody's lives mostly would have been different and i feel so grateful to have lived through that we made mistakes. Oh, we terrible. made mistakes mm. because we were experimenting wildly yeah. with, you know, and um, there uh, you have a number of uh, books about the uh, that the early years of, of ac activism, right? Um, and you want to read this poem is called the seventies, um, and it really it, it really captures my ambivalence at the time. How I wanted to be, you know, the most. Uh, radical of activists but actually it was quite difficult to, to do so the um, epigraph is from Bob Dylan tangled up in blue you'd think we'd have been nothing but happy indeed we often speak of those days with nostalgia oh how we shouted and marched and slept in musty bags on the ground beside barbed wire beside the soldiers who guarded the war machines You'd think we'd recall striding, arms linked, along the simmering streets, donning our costumes of shocking certainty. You'd think those might be the happiest days of all, when change flew in from the west and further west, and blind belief raised its defiant fist inside the circle. The commune seethed as lonely latched on to lonely, mm. blueprints for friendship, thrown out with the trash. Sisterhood shone bright, but cast long shadows, and tangled up we were, the barbed wire piercing skin, as we loved and hated, kissed and ran. No wonder I secretly dreamed of being alone. I drove by myself to Wales. I parked at the farm. I climbed three fields. Sheep looked up from the grass and shook their matted fleece and grazed again. 
I sat in the slate-roofed shepherd's house beside the stream, beside the dry stone wall, beside the rowan tree where one bird called, one voice alone, whistling praise to the world. Those were the days of clearest colours, days I floated in heather's deep blue silence, breathing the dust of last night's smoky coal-fire, wishing I were back with everyone else. So moving from the 70s to more recent times, um, when there still has been much, much to, 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 to march about and shout about, um, I, I was uh, in Madrid and I was flying into London and I flew into London the day after the July 7th bombings in London, which was the biggest terrorist bombings that had ever had um, in the underground station and on two buses. Um, and what I year was that, Judy? Um, that uh, okay, I've forgotten. Right. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to write about it, and I thought about that Auden poem, um, which he eventually sort of disowned. But it's a wonderful poem. It's a wonderful poem, and I looked at it again, and I I was very amazed that. Uh, first of all, it's odd form. It's the, all eleven line stanzas, which is an odd number. They're all the same. Lots of uh, irregular rhyme, and um, the rhythm of it is—it's trimeter, so it's like a waltz rhythm, which is usually sort of light-hearted poems. But this is a very serious poem, and I thought it was interesting that he contrasted the form with the subject here, and so I stole it. I decided to just imitate the form. So I called it the London Bombs, um, and it really talks about there's always one image in a war or in a situation like that that gets played over and over on the television, and there was one in that instance which was of, of a woman with a bandaged uh, face um, coming out of the tunnel. This is an epigraph by W.H. Auden. The unmentionable odor of death offends the September night from his poem called September the 1st, 1939. This time, it's early July, and more than six decades have loosed a spate of speech where once grave tongues were tied. Deaths on the lips of each smooth-talking TV head, projecting sincerest concern at the camera's red-hot eye. A rotten smell pervades the air, only the dead can catch the spinning lie. Survivors, poxy with soot, stumble into the light. Photographers flash at the mask of a swaddled face, white like the bandaged invisible man, except that the left eye's covered, the right a mystery. One foot in front of the other, huddled into a stranger, she asks, what happened? Don't worry, love, he says, hop into the van. Deep in the earth, dig and sift and chase off rats in 110 degree heat. Up top, flowers, photos of lovers who'll never be found, handbags, odd shoes, a wig, sunglasses, half-burned hats. Rumors swirl around as dust wafts from the feet of doctors, policemen, cats from the tunnel, triumphant crows. No good asking, why do we never learn? or what makes the young men suicidal. No good bemoaning the hate afflicting not just the idle, the disenfranchised, the poor. Before each and every war, some poet has seen the signs and sat at a table, his cry crafted too soon or too late into useless shapely lines. I watch a small brown dog trot past the yellow tape of the crime scene, cordoned off in front of the station. The shape of attention, the hopeful wag, the whiskery head cocked to one side, all tell a story of daily meeting and greeting. But now with his front door locked, it's buzz off, dog, and sorry. He's joined the ranks of the waiting. The dense commuters come into some new kind of life, strap hangers said to be stoic or brave or merely numb which wrist veined like a leaf 
which muscled calf, which ear will rip or burn in the thick of the next explosion. Fear is quiet. The human race hurtles through tunnels, its gaze averted in its bandaged face. And it's hurtling real fast through the tunnels now. I, I really identify with the, the lines, uh, before each and every war, some poet has seen the signs and sat at a table his cry, crafted too soon or too late into useless, shapely lines. And I think that's what, um, that's what Auden thought um, about his poem. <coughs> he cut pieces out of it and then eventually he just, just sort of withdrew the whole poem and it's a wonderful poem. Well, it, it is a wonderful poem and that, that brings us to a poem of yours, which is earlier in the book, actually, horses, oh. which is called um, the poem. Okay. And the thing is that Auden was disgusted because perhaps he felt that that poetry was not going to change the world. Yeah. And I, you know, I began writing political poems way back. You did in college when <coughs> you were. It was officially banned. Yeah. You could not mix po uh, politics and poetry, and I w defied them, and I was saying, look, look, yeah. look what's happening. Well, now uh, what's happening is you don't have to point at it, you know? I mean, it's just slapping us in the face uh, and stomping us awful. on the head, you yeah. know? Really. We've sort of pulled the rugs out in a way <laughs> from underneath my... But, uh, you know, and what you're doing in this book is a personal journey, and besides being um, something that we hope can can in some way grab the hearts and the imagination of people and 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 inch them move them towards some change that's necessary or they might not have made without that that string of the poem that crystallizes yeah. the form around it one always hopes but <laughs> but it also always does something for the poet mm. and i you know we talked about this i think poetry I would define it, and you could, you know, do a program, whole program, as a spiritual exercise. Oh, I think that's right. Yes. However, um, uh, and and the poem deals with, you know, uh, finding that poem, and then your last. Uh, uh, we're going to end with um, a contentious, <laughs> a contentious poem, okay. which is the last one in your seventh time? book, not a credo. Okay. okay. So let's have the poem the on poem, page 79. Which right. on the surface is about what it feels like to want to write a poem, but of course you know it's really about something else. Right. <coughs> the poem. It hides in my heart, waiting as if in the small circle at the middle of the labyrinth. I walk towards it, but the path turns away by a purple foxglove, and I must follow the windings that will in the end lead me to the centre. It smells of cedars and honeyed skin, cappuccino with grated chocolate, the brine of its own body's betrayal. Like a chestnut horse, it hides in shadow, one white sock and the moist gleam of an eye announcing its steady presence. It has lodged in my heart like a stone in the shoe. Each time the great muscle contracts, I feel it rubbing the same tender spot. There is no avoiding it, no limping or hopping, no shaking it to a more comfortable place, no stillness that can ease the bruise except the stillness of a motionless heart. It is the door behind which somebody stands waiting to kiss and be kissed. I feel it rubbing. You know, you wrote this poem long before you realized that you had any physical trouble with your heart. And I think our poems sometimes will, you know, reflect things about our body that we don't mm, know. It's quite possible, but I, the heart thing was very recent. I mean, I... I know. So... Yes, <coughs> and that was an old... I've had a dream when I married my husband 56 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that presaged a lot of what happened in the future. Yeah. And, um, it's just I feel it rubbing the same tender spot. There's no avoiding it, no limping or hopping. 
on and the stillness of a motionless heart is the door behind which somebody stands waiting to kiss and be kissed. Well, what is a motionless heart? Let's go into credo. Not mine, <laughs> I hope. No, no, no. Well, I think maybe that's like a, you know, all of us always, uh, all of our, all of us will have a motionless heart. And, okay, and here's not a credo. So you just want me to read the, just the last section? Well, how long do we have? I think we, we have um, four, nine, fifteen, seven minutes. Oh, so I could read the whole poem. Yeah, read the whole poem, and then we'll argue. Okay. <laughs> it's called Not a Credo, and it's in three short sections. One, one distant woman and a dog on a two-mile beach, low warm sun in a streaky sky, flock of sandpipers scurries in unison, gliding heron prowls above the bay. In front of my bench, a brown dumpling of a bird darts from boulders making kissing sounds. On the far side of the water, log trucks groan. This side, nearly all, is quiet. Blue is everywhere, including inside me. They so diminish this who call it God, or even God's best work. Two, what is this God they second-guess, argue about, fight in the name of? What great longing lurks in the breasts of humans that they must conjure a deity from forests where stands of trees are trunk and branch and leaf, not cathedrals of sacred heavy stone? Why the rules, the threats, the promises to lure the unsuspecting with virgins or angels sitting on clouds in the sky, a hundred distractions from the business of dying. Three, few dare to reject the tricks pulled off by the wizard in his cloak, the priest in his gown, rabbi, imam, pious clown. But where, amid all that pomp, is the hiding place of conscience. The backbone of one life glows and is soon snuffed out. No fuss, no ascension, no bribery at the gate. The light, the incredible light of every day is followed, not by darkness, nor even silence, but, lo and behold, the greatest emptiness emptied. Judith, I would argue you call yourself an atheist. But being an atheist is as much a matter of belief as being a believer. Since we don't know, that, you know, there's, there's no way of knowing except that certain people tell us. And you've had that experience and I've had that experience. That uh, at least I have had the experience um, of, of having um, visions of seeing things that happened in a pl from the past. I mean, I, I know that, that, that what we perceive is just a tiny, tiny little, you know, part of the nature of reality. We're not really, as humans, um, outfitted to grasp reality. <laughs> but people, people have, you know, have said, I, I know because this happened, and I know that there is a lot, you know, that there's more going on than this mortal frame that we have. Absolutely. But I, but I, but I, all I'm trying to say is that I do not believe in any God. Yeah, not Jehovah, but you know, those, those trees and those mountains, they are to certain yep. people who are in touch with the land, they are cathedrals. Yeah. And they and the but I hate that they do that to the trees. Well, the trees deserve to be trees. Well, there are some <coughs> trees that are spirit trees. Yes, I really do. Let's believe call that. them spirit trees then. Well, they're spirit trees, but they, what realm does that spirit? Why, why come do we from? have to call them cathedrals? I'm telling you this. Okay, don't call them cathedrals. And what you're talking about is God. You can substitute Jehovah. Yeah. Or you can substitute any monotheistic deity that will beat people over the head if you don't, you know, ascribe. But I do believe um, that there is a spirit in us. Yes. And a spirit that that um, also, you know, can contact us. And I believe that artists like, and this was the Gnostic Gospels, they, 
<laughs> they said you don't need an intermediary, but that <laughs> artists and poets are directly in contact. I completely agree with that. And and in the end of this poem, you atheist, <laughs> with this poem, with the last lines of this poem, you just emptied the greatest emptiness. <laughs> and if that isn't, you know, if, if that isn't... Um, That's just that I'm wanting to say that I don't believe in all these myths about what death is. Well, we don't know, do no, we? We, don't, we know. don't know. That's why it's but empty. But we do know, yeah, but you emptied the greatest emptiness. Where does that leave? Okay, my dear. Uh, you're I a think poet, we, which I think, is to say. I think we have uh, to spend about another hour or two somewhere else continuing right. this. Right. <laughs> okay, I want to thank you so much. Yep. Um, this you, is You're very welcome. Uh, uh, Judith Barrington, thank you. And we will continue. I'm honored to be back in your revived show. And you're my first guest. Thank you very much. Yes, and thank you for coming, and thank you for this wonderful book. Thank and, you. And the fact is, because, you know, um, standing on the soapbox um, is, you know, I mean, we still want to do it, and I, I'm, I will still soapbox. I will never stop soapboxing. But to make that like a main thing that I do in poetry, this, you're, this is... The jur- the the per- a personal journey of meaning, mm. and um and relationship with with the world with the times and um anyway and and I um I I so much appreciate this wonderful book. Um, this is Barbara Lamorticella here with Judith Barrington. I'm going to be back uh, on tax the third. I'll be back the the third. Um, the third Monday of every other month and so my next show will be in April and I want to thank Patrick Bocard. You're tuned in to listener supported community radio KBOO Portland Is your organization planning a virtual event? Looking for a media co-sponsorship? Then 